Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 13, The Circus Comes to Town. It is a mountainside, silent and gloomy in the downing day. Around the base, a railroad winds, stretching away for miles. Dimly outlined, a train passes, followed by a second, and then by a third at brief intervals. Seen from the height, the three trains look like a gigantic snake moving onward in sections. Combined, they are at least a mile in length. They are made up of cars of many colours, laden each with the most curious freight. On long flat cars are wagon cages, now covered with canvas to protect the red and gold in which they are decorated, and containing all of the beasts of the jungle. Inside four huge rolling stables, a herd of elephants, each weighing four or five tons, are swinging their trunks, while in other cars, 300 horses, including the purest breeds, are ranged together so closely, head and tail, tail and head, that though one of them should be stricken dead, he could not fall to the floor. In long brown cars, 300 workmen are packed in tiers, almost as closely as the horses. In long red cars, jugglers, snake charmers, acrobats, bareback riders and trapeze performers are sleeping. In another sleep giants and dwarves, the man with one head and two bodies, the man with no arms, the woman with the bearded face and the dog-faced boy. Should harm come to these winding trains, 700 lives would be imperiled. Elephants worth $70,000 might be destroyed and horses worth twice as much destruction of the entire menagerie would mean the loss of half a million dollars. With no recovery, for there is no insurance, the insurance companies are counting the risk too great. That was an extract from How the Circus is Put Up and Taken Down by Cleveland Moffat, published in McClure's in 1895. Last week, I talked about how our present-day experience of major sporting events, the pageantry, entertainment and ceremony, was partly the brainchild of the pageantry director of the 1960 Winter Olympics, a certain Walt Disney. That got me to thinking about not just the show, but what goes on behind the scenes, and, in particular, the amazing logistical exercise which is involved in keeping the show on the road. So this week, we'll be looking at the logistics of sport. We'll also look ahead to the racing in Nova Miesto in the Czech Republic, which starts on Thursday 2nd of March. Sports logistics is a huge undertaking. In the 16 days of the Rio de Janeiro 2016 Olympic Games in Brazil, more than 11,000 athletes competing in 42 sports took part in 306 events across 37 venues involving more than 36,000 volunteers from 161 countries and 6.2 million spectators. All of this had to be broadcast globally with multiple simultaneous events taking place. Everything from golf clubs to dressage horses, from sailing boats to bicycles, had to be brought into the country for athletes. And those athletes had to be dressed, transported, accommodated and fed by their own Olympic federations and the organising body in Brazil. Biathlon weekends aren't on the same scale as an Olympic Games, but the task is still Herculean. Biathlon also happens week in, week out, from November to March, with only a break at Christmas for those not involved in the World Team Challenge, and the odd week out before or after a major championships. Unlike the circus, biathlon and other sports don't have to bring everything with them. There are fixed locations, 
Novomiesto, Pakluka, Andholz and the like, which have tracks, ranges, administration buildings, seating for spectators, all the basic locations and needs for biathlon. That bit is easy. But think about everything else that needs to be moved into place. Athletes with their trainers, physios, wax technicians, skis, poles, waxing tables, ski suits and accessories, the media, people and equipment for broadcasters and journalists from multiple nations, hospitality, entertainment, food and drink for everyone behind the scenes and for 20,000 plus spectators too, and the infrastructure, electricity, water, heat, waste and recycling, toilets, not to mention access for spectators every day and for emergency services just in case. So how does it all happen? Researchers at universities in Köln and Vienna have identified four facets of sports logistics management. They are venue logistics management, sports equipment logistics, athlete logistics management, and fan and spectator logistics. Let's start with the venues. Regular followers of Biathlon will know the, the main names, and I've already mentioned some of them. If you've been listening to this podcast, you'll know that a lot, a lot of these are biathlon centres in very small villages, often associated with a nearby military base, harking back to biathlon's origins as a training method for ski-based marksmanship by soldiers. Logistics is a significant part of venue operations. Sporting events create an extraordinary volume of demand for services to be provided in a very short period of time, and also call for a large variety of services to support the different needs of spectators, athletes, administrators and so forth, each of which has specific demands to make of the venue. There are some fixed things in these locations, buildings, roads, tracks, and a certain amount of infrastructure for power and water and so forth. Even with the things that are in place, there's work to be done. Preparing the tracks for women's and men's races, ensuring that the stadium seating is in place, be it permanent or temporary, testing for everything from power cuts, which we have seen this year, to emergency access for injuries, to how to evacuate a crowd in a crisis. This emergency planning, especially for injuries, is perhaps easier than for sports like alpine skiing, where you're dealing with a much more challenging terrain and potentially more dramatic injuries. Within the venue, there's a lot of temporary things to be established for the benefit of spectators and for the teams and biathletes. More on this in a moment. The other main thing to be established is actually the corporate stuff. Banners, displays, hoarding for sponsors, advertisers, the flags of different nations, all of the pageantry that we learned from Disney back in 1960 that creates the spectacle of the event. This has to be thought through. We had an inflatable backdrop to a podium at Oberhof which almost blew away in gusting winds. And we consistently have podiums that are designed for solo races and which become incredibly crowded when a relay team tries to stand on them. The other aspect of venue logistics is people. There may be some full-time employees at biathlon venues, but for large-scale events there will be a reliance on temporary employment and local volunteers. When we talked about the importance of family back in an earlier episode, one aspect of the development of youth athletes is the phase when parents become increasingly involved in the wider sport, often as volunteers at junior or amateur meets. This extends to professional meets, where local biathlon clubs, ski clubs and community organisations will be the recruiting hubs for many event volunteers. You also need space for the actual logistics of the race day in terms of administration. This might mean offices for athlete and staff accreditations, whatever you do, don't lose your pass, but also space for athletes to check in for the race, space to check rifles and equipment, warm-up and cool-down areas, changing facilities and testing huts. 
One of the fascinating things about watching the TV feed on the IBU and Eurovision sports websites has been the extended coverage before and after races. So you see much more behind the scenes than you typically would. And this has included some of the checking in and checking out stuff. I'll talk a little bit about transport for spectators later. But let's just recognise right now that many of the host villages for biathlon events are relatively tiny, with road networks to suit. On to equipment logistics. Those road networks that I mentioned will need to accommodate the trucks that bring in not only venue stuff, so temporary seating, marquees, food and drink, but also equipment for the biathletes. Teams will have maybe eight to ten athletes, each of whom will have perhaps eight pairs of skis to allow for different racing conditions and intense work through a biathlon meet. A typical team may have four wax technicians looking after those skis. The best resource teams have 18-wheeler trucks which travel from venue to venue with all of the kit. The Austrian truck, for example, has its own workbenches, hundreds of ski mounts and a ski grinding machine. If you're not rich enough to have a truck, you can use one of the containers provided by most venues. And yes, these are shipping containers or temporary office porter cabins. Often these are shared between countries. In the Amanda Lightfoot YouTube video linked in the transcript to this episode, you can see inside the cabin that Team GB shares with the Australians. A lot of skis, not much space. Some of those containers even have windows. I do hope they all have ventilation though, given the nature of the chemicals with which the wax technicians have to work. Those big trucks are great not only for getting everything moved around between race meets, but also for down weeks when they can, presumably, head back to HQ along with everyone else. If you're not a team with a truck, then you're probably putting everything in the back of a van and driving it home, or having it shipped ahead and stored somewhere to wait for you at the next venue. Most racing takes place in mainland Europe, within countries covered by what's known as the Schengen Agreement. This is the agreement which allows free movement between countries, so you don't have to constantly check passports or customs requirements. There are 27 countries in the Schengen area, including all of mainland Western Europe and the Baltic nations, so all of the major biathlon venues are covered. What this means is, once you're in, say, Finland for the first race of the season, you can travel freely to Sweden, Austria, France, Germany, Italy, Czechia, Slovenia, Norway for the rest of the season's races without having to show passports or customs documentation. A lot of the more Eastern European countries aren't yet within the Schengen area. So, for example, if there were races in Romania, Bulgaria or Ukraine, there would be more complexity around moving equipment and people between venues. Sometimes the World Cup comes to North America, which is its own logistical challenge. Many of the stories told by athletes about lost luggage relate to trips to the US or Canada. Speaking of the athletes. Generally for biathletes, Monday is travel day, with athletes flying or travelling by bus or train to the next venue. The important thing is that everything needs to be in place and ready for the biathletes to start training on the new course on a Tuesday. Athletes need to travel from A to B in ways that will minimise stress, enable them to rest and recover from the past week's racing, and give some scope to prepare for the next. There are some horror stories. One Czech biathlete was arrested on the way to Canmore in Canada when changing flights in the UK because she had a bullet in her pocket. There are stories of lost rifles at airports and on trains, lost luggage, things being borrowed in venues, frantic drives home to collect things that have been forgotten. Athletes and their teams will be put up in local hotels, and this means there's a need for room space to be pre-booked well in advance, in competition with media, broadcasters, officials and spectators. It can get crowded. Some accommodation might be a distance away from the tracks, 
And here's where having sponsorship of the sport from the likes of BMW can be helpful. At World Cup meets, there's generally transport available for the biathletes from the hotels to the tracks and ranges. Once at the venues, athletes and staff can get free food at the Family Club, also known as the Upsilon or the Y. It's provided at every major event and serves food all day long if you have the right credentials. I've heard the term biathlon family a lot, but I never realised it came with its own club. There's also an element of athlete logistics management which is about scheduling of racing. If you've been following the schedules this year, you'll have noted that the men's and women's races tend to alternate early in the week, with double headers happening at the weekends. There's a lot of racing to be done each week, and biathletes can be prone to illness as we've seen this season. Managing that schedule, as well as the wider season schedule, is crucial. It's often more of a challenge in other sports. In basketball, for example, teams play 82 games in a regular season, typically three games a week. There are perhaps more fixed items in basketball, the venues are pretty much set, but that's still a lot of people and kit to be moved very quickly from one place to the next, and a gruelling schedule for players both in terms of the games themselves and in terms of travel. You'd better like flying if you're a professional basketball player. On to fan and spectator logistics management. Bringing people into events is a huge challenge. The biggest events, such as roop holding, can draw in 30,000 spectators each day. Annecy Le Grand Bonon only started hosting Biathlon World Cups recently and is already drawing in crowds of well over 25,000 per day. Bear in mind that these are low-level ski resorts generally. There's often a relatively decent highway through the bottom of a valley, but then you're on to more challenging roads and there's often only one route in or out of a venue for everyone to use. Most venues are, are edge of town, and the more progressive ones have strong connections with public transport systems, free buses, the metro system in Oslo, to try and discourage travel by private car on those narrow roads, and perhaps to encourage greater uptake of all the hospitality offerings. In addition, it's important to make sure that venues are accessible for all, including those with disabilities. So again, this is going to be a crucial part of the logistics planning for a biathlon meet. Once the fans start to arrive, what then? Well, security, ticketing, ushering to the right part of the stadium, or finding their way to their favourite spot around the tracks. It's hard enough to manage a crowd within a stadium, but what do you do as they wander out into the forests? Within the stadium, are there enough seats? Can everyone see a big screen that needs to? And how will everyone be fed and watered? Catering and hospitality providers need to be on site, with access to power and potentially water. Some venues will have permanent structures containing some catering provision, but a lot will rely on catering vans that may have been in place all week and who will need to be connected and accommodated too. Given how many payment systems are now electronic, those caterers will also need to be connected to the Wi-Fi. The spectator experience isn't just at the venue, it's at home too. A biathlon event might need 8 to 10 miles of wiring just for TV cameras. Some of the bigger venues may have buried this cable infrastructure already, so it's in situ. Others will need to lay out additional cable. There will need to be dedicated IT infrastructure for broadcasters too, including con connectivity into the data related to the event itself, the data which we see on our TV screens and also in real time on the IBU app. It's amazing how much data there is in a sport which is so analogue. You could run this with a stopwatch and some mechanical targets. I touched on data in episode 12, so do listen back if you're interested in what data provides and what it might hold for the future. Something to say about spectators at venues. They are there for the sport, 
but they will always remember if they had to queue too long for a bus, a beer or a bathroom. It's the things that sit around the sport that often determine someone's enjoyment of the sporting event as an experience. You may be interested or perhaps terrified to know that the current UK government guidelines for events, including food and drink and lasting more than six hours, is a minimum of one toilet per 75 women, another toilet per 400 men and one urinal per 100 male attendees. So that's something to bear in mind. A recurring theme during this podcast has been our changing climate. That's not been deliberate, but it has come from discussion of the reduction of snowfall in the Alps, the use of artificial snow, and questions about the ongoing viability of the sport in some locations. It's been interesting in the past week to see alpine skiers coming together to challenge their federation, the FIS, to consider environmental issues more in the scheduling and logistics of the sport. So how can this be done? Well, the first step is to look at the schedule and think about athlete and equipment transportation. What is the shortest path between the venues, allowing for what we know about likely snowfall patterns? It might make sense to start the season with more of the northerly venues, Kontiolahti in Finland, Ostersen in Sweden, Oslo in Norway, where there's more likely to be good snow in late November and early December. That then would lead to a longer stint in the Alpine countries later in the season, when there's been more likelihood of snow, and where you have more venues in closer proximity in case you need to change the schedule. Following the snow on a sort of regional basis could prevent the sport from zigzagging across the continent too much, and that gives a bit more certainty to the quality of snow available for racing. It could, however, cause upset among people who have a traditional connection of venues to dates. Oslo is often the last race meet of the season in mid-March, and might be upset to lose out on late-season visitors, as well as the spectacle of the big event. And biathlon is not the only sport competing for these tracks. Cross-country skiing comes to many of the same venues, and ski jumping to those with the right facilities. So there's a blending of schedules that needs to happen, at the federation level, as well as discussion and negotiation with the venues. For some venues, peak snow is also peak tourism, so they might prefer to schedule sporting events on artificial snow as a way of bringing in visitors and spectators, specifically because the ski conditions aren't great for you and me. Logistics planners for the teams will constantly be looking at ways to move people and equipment more efficiently. Rises in fuel prices will no doubt have set them to looking at fuel efficiency, more aerodynamic trucks and more eco-friendly ways of driving. An 18-wheeler, however, is a large vehicle and, in the longer term, it is the larger vehicles that are going to be the last to be electrified. Might we see a downsizing from these large diesel vehicles into medium-sized electric vehicles? What space do ski techs need to fulfil what they do? What if all the venues had high quality space and facilities for waxing? Moving spectators is probably the biggest environmental impact associated with biathlon meet. I've mentioned this before. Shared transport, public transport, walking routes, all will help to reduce the use of private cars, which are a major contributor to local air pollution and to global emissions. Designing the spectator experience so it includes transport is an option. Imagine if your ticket entitled you to be collected at a local transport hub, the main train station for example, got you on an electric shuttle bus to the stadium, perhaps with a warming cup of Glühwein and an opportunity to plan your day. End-to-end public transport systems are going to be essential to the future of all sports held in more remote locations, but they usually only consider the mega sports end of things for events like the Olympics. It'll be interesting to see what Cortina does for the Winter Olympics in 2026. 
Once you're at the stadium, then it's all about the food and drink. What's being sold and how sustainable is it? What are the cups and plates made of? There are some lovely photos from Contiolati showing bar tables and stools made of timber offcuts that use local materials and that can be reused year after year. We're still under the tyranny of the plastic cup, but certainly at music festivals we're now seeing reusable cups with deposit schemes or even metal cups being introduced with a longer lifetime to stop the endless streams of plastic waste. Many sports venues don't want glass or metal brought in because of concerns about safety, but perhaps an enlightened biathlon crowd can be trusted. Speaking of biathlon, it's back this week and we journey to Nova Miesto in the Czech Republic. Skiing in this region supposedly started with a local gamekeeper, Rudolf Gabesam, in the 1890s. He started using skis for his work in the forest and then promoted skiing as a leisure activity in itself. The first ski races took place in the area in 1910. One early and prominent visitor was a Norwegian skiing coach, Ingvad Smith Keeland. He helped teach cross-country skiing and downhill to locals from Nova Miesto. Apparently he then went on to become Norway's ambassador. Close to Nova Miesto is the church of St John of Nepomuk. John was Archbishop of Prague in the late 1300s, at the time of King Václav or Wenceslas IV. Legend has it that John was the confessor to the Queen, but refused to divulge things that she had shared with him to her husband, the King. Václav didn't take this well and had John tortured repeatedly. When he still wouldn't divulge any confessional secrets, he was thrown from the Charles Bridge into the river and drowned. As with all histories, there's more to it than this. The Queen only became a feature of the story of John a couple of hundred years later, and by a strange coincidence, the reformer Jan Hus was also drowned by being thrown off the Charles Bridge. It's been suggested that the death by drowning story was applied to a Catholic archbishop to try and confuse and distract from the death by drowning of the popular reformer, conflating the two in a way that would put the Catholic story above the rebels. Another interpretation from the church perspective is that this is a story of why emperors and kings should not interfere in religious matters. The emphasis on the sacred secrets of the confessionals was becoming more important during the 14th and 15th century and gave the church a reason to call John a martyr and to make him a saint beyond what might have been a more prosaic incident. Whatever John of Nepomuk's real story, what does stand to him is the church at Zelena Hora. Legend says that when John died, five stars appeared around his head and it is this association with the number five that influenced the church's architect, Jan Santini Eichel, usually known as Santini. The church was built in the early 1700s and is based on a floor plan shaped like a five-pointed star. Throughout the church, you can see clusters of five stars and the number five. There are five gates, five chapels around the main arcade, five altars in the church, and five stars on the high altar. In biathlon terms in the Czech Republic, it's the women who have dominated recent years. One of the biggest names in the 2010s was Gabriela Sukalova, two-time world champion, two-time Olympic silver medalist, and overall winner of the Biathlon World Cup. Sukalova retired in 2019 and has gone on to become a campaigner around eating disorders. In her autobiography, she talked about her own issues with anorexia and bulimia and some of the physical manifestations of sports anxiety that she suffered. It's another reminder of a price that some sport sometimes demands its players to pay. To the schedule for this week's racing, uh, on Thursday the 2nd of March at 3.10pm UK time, 
we have the men's 10km sprint. On Friday the 3rd of March, again at 3.10 in the UK, we have the women's sprint. On Saturday the 4th of March, we have the two pursuit races, the men's at 12.50 and the women's at 2.45 in the afternoon. And then on Sunday the 5th of March, an earlier start, we have a double header of relays. At 10.30 in the morning, we have the mixed relay and at 2.15 in the afternoon, the single mixed relay. So who to watch out for? Well, the Czech team had a great World Championships with top 10s for Marketa Davidova, Teresa Fobornikova and Michael Kritschmar and a great fourth place in the men's relay. It would be wonderful to see them carrying through some of that form to their home meet. Something that seems to happen after the major championships is a dip in form for people who exerted themselves a lot. There will be those who train specifically for the championships and will now drift out of form. Those who are just physically and mentally elated or exhausted. With this in mind, we often see some surprises in results later in the biathlon season. In the Men's World Cup, Johannes Tingisbo is probably mathematically certain to win almost every crystal globe there is. He'll want to make sure of this. And with the season he's having, I can't see him stopping. But I can see him maybe taking his foot off the gas if he gets the opportunity. Note also that Johannes' wife has just given birth to their second baby, so he could be distracted and thinking about how he'd rather be at home. I don't think he'll skip any race meetings, which he did after the birth of his first child, but it might feel less important now that he's won a bunch of medals and pretty much secured all the Crystal Globes and can chill a bit. So if not Johannes, then who? Well, the person who's still desperate to prove something is Stura Holm Ligrid. He has finished in the top four in every race bar one this season. Let me say that again. He has finished in the top four in 23 out of 24 races this season. No one comes near that for consistency. But he's only won in relays and once in a solo race, the pursuit in Annecy when Johannes' skis lost all their grip, grip and he looked like Bambi on ice. Surely it's time for Stura Ligrid to get some wins. I think the German men might come into this meet with something to prove. As I said last time, they seemed capable of getting into the top 10 in the World Championships, but it was never the same guy twice. Someone like Just Estrello has been shooting really well, or I could see it Philip Naurath getting up there in one of the longer race formats. I also think Tero Seppola of Finland could be in the mood to follow up his top 10 Noberhof with something sparkling. And Quentin Fionnier may still have something that he wants to prove. The women's side remains more open. Whilst Julia Simon is leading the World Cup overall, it's much more competitive. Julia looked exhausted by the end of the World Championships, whilst her nearest rival Elvira Erberg will be better rested, having been ill during Oberhof. She will have been sad to miss those races, but perhaps is now more fired up for the following meets. Expect her to sprint well as always, and then expect the usual battle royale between Elvira, Julia, Lisa Vitozzi, Denise Herman Vick, and perhaps Marketa Davidova in the longer races. I hope that Ingrid Tandrevold brings some of the confidence and competitiveness that she showed in the mass start at Oberhof. And I also wouldn't be surprised to see a return to form for Amy Berserger of Switzerland and some strong performances from the Finnish women too. One last thing. I started this episode talking about a circus and it ended in the Czech Republic, so let's tie those two together. The most famous circus in Czech, Bohemian, Austro-Hungarian history was the Circus Klutsky, run by a successive generations of the Klutsky family. Records dating back to 1789 show a license for a travelling show, 
and during the 1800s this came to include fireworks, a mechanical theatre, rope walking and a carousel. Antonin Klutsky is seen as the real founder of the family circus as we know it. He was originally a puppeteer, then bought a carousel, then took on a menagerie of animals after its owner was killed by his own tigers. Antonin and his wife had 20 children, all boys, many of whom went on to own circuses of some sort. Antonin Jr., the eldest, had taken a leading role in managing the family circus, but was tragically yet romantically killed on his wedding day by a lion. Another bro brother, Karol Klutsky, took on the circus and made it a huge success. He grew the workforce, bought out other circuses, and created an enterprise which, at its peak, had a tent which would seat 10,000 spectators. A menagerie of 700 animals, including 25 elephants, 160 horses, 74 wild animals like lions and tigers and leopards, three giraffes and one hippopotamus. There were also 200 human performers and, back to logistics, a train with 200 cars for transportation. Sadly, Carol was also defeated by his animals. Whilst touring in Turin, a loud fireworks display spooked the elephants and they stampeded. This led to Carol having a nervous breakdown and he died a couple of years later. Two of Carol's sons, Carol and Rudolf, took on management of the circus, but the worrying financial and political environment of the early 1930s, plus an outbreak of pneumonia in 1931 that killed more than 200 animals, and the stranding of the circus in Vienna on the outbreak of the Austrian Civil War in 1934, all made it impossible to continue. The Klutsky name disappeared from circuses in Czechoslovakia after World War II. Members of the family were ostracised and lived in relative poverty. The state circus came into being in 1951. But other family members continued to perform overseas, even into the early 2000s. We don't have so many circuses now, and those we do are rightly very different. Wild animals are gone, at least from UK circuses, and they are now much more about human performance, be that a juggling clown or the acrobats of Cirque du Soleil. But behind the scenes, there is still someone whose job is to make sure that everything is kept packed in the right crate, put in the right truck, and sent to the right venue for the next show. This one's for all those who move things to where they need to be. Cheers. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow us on Twitter at skishootrepeat, and do get in touch to tell me what's right and what's wrong, uh, what you are interested in hearing about in future episodes. We only have a couple more episodes uh, due this season as, as the racing comes to an end. So if you have any questions or topics you'd like to raise based on previous episodes, please do let me know. Um, I will be back next week to review the racing in Nova Miesto. Look forward to the next week of racing in Ostersund in Sweden and have a deep dive discussion into another topic related to our sport. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.